Um, I want to say this. It's getting more intense. And we're running out of time. So we can't play games anymore. And so in the past, I would be okay with people being unresponsive to God in the church. Today, I'm not. I'm okay with unbelievers being unresponsive, but I'm absolutely not okay with believers being unresponsive to God. And neither should you. Why I say that is because you can be in brokenness, in pain, in hurt, and in the worst situation of your life and still respond to Jesus. Unresponsiveness has nothing to do with situations or circumstances. It has to do with passivity and hardness of heart. And Jesus, read the chapters Matthew 10 all the way through to Matthew 14. Jesus says that it'll be better for the cities like Sodom and Gomorrah than the cities that are unresponsive to God. Ooh. Passivity, hardness of heart. Gotta be real careful when you find yourself in that place. And I think what we need to do is get back on our knees and ask for the mercy of heaven to change our hearts. God's mobilizing the church. It is happening across the earth right now in every continent. Things are breaking out. We are seeing the greater things that Jesus prophesied. It is happening. There's testimonies recently of a, a man in the Middle East who was captured by ISIS and uh, they tried to kill him by burning him alive. Only thing is he didn't burn. didn't feel the fire, didn't feel the petrol and gasoline, he didn't burn. They couldn't kill him, so they let him go. Okay, so Holy Spirit, help me. I love you. Thank you, Jesus, for the privilege. Thank you to our lead elders, my parents, the leadership team of 24-7. appreciate the privilege of sharing the gospel. Today, I'm going to talk about the joy of forsaking all else and possessing God. You need to write it down in your book or your phone. You need to do it right now. Write it down. It's probably one of the most important things that you're ever going to hear, not because I'm preaching it, but because it's in the Bible. So you can turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. I'm going to be reading out of the Amplified. Okay. But more than that, this is Paul speaking. But more than that, I count everything as loss compared to the priceless privilege and supreme advantage of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, and of growing more deeply and thoroughly acquainted with Him, a joy unequaled. For His sake, I have lost everything. And I consider it all garbage so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, believing and relying on Him, not having any righteousness of my own, this is an Amplified, derived from my own obedience to the law and its rituals, but possessing that genuine righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Turn to Luke chapter 9, verse 23. This is Jesus speaking to the followers and disciples. 
And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to follow me as my disciple, he must deny himself, set aside selfish interests, and take up his cross daily, expressing a willingness to endure whatever may come, and follow me. And that word follow me can be expressed like this, believing in me, conforming to my example in living, and if need be, suffering or perhaps dying because of faith in me. And then most of you know the scripture, Matthew chapter five, verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There is something that I don't think many of us as believers, and I don't just mean in this room, I mean across the world, specifically in the Western church, something that I don't believe we caught when we got saved. And it's the true expression, the true demonstration, the true revelation of what it means to be born again. And one of the very first things that needs to happen in your heart when you've become born again in Jesus is that there is a decision to forsake all else but God. Nobody teaches that anymore. Because here's the thing, it's easier to get you to say yes to Jesus if I tell you that you can add him to your life. And that he's gonna make it better and he's gonna make it easier and he's gonna bless you and things are gonna get better. The reality is the cost of following Jesus is everything. See, Paul says, I have, for his sake I've lost everything. No one took it from him. No one robbed him of everything that he once was and owned. For his sake, I've lost everything for one reason, that I may gain Christ. There is a principle in understanding what it means to be born again. And I believe that there's a couple of these spiritual disciplines and principles that have been lost in the church. And, and I feel like the Lord is bringing us back to remind us of this. That at the point that you've given your life to Jesus, there is no such thing as accepting Jesus. It's not in the Bible. He asks for your life. At the point of giving Jesus your life, there is a decision that every believer makes, and that is to forsake everything but God. The question that I asked myself while studying this is why? Why is it that that seems to be an expectation of God? But not only that, it seems to be the natural response of anyone that has an encounter with Jesus. Did you hear what I just said? If you study this book, the natural response of anyone that encounters God is to forsake everything so that they may gain Him. The ones that don't do that never end up sticking with Him. So why is there this expectation of God and this response from men that have encountered God? Why is it that they forsake everything? There is an age-old lie that we have believed, well, the world believed this for a long time, and all of a sudden, look around you, the church has started to believe it. And it has infiltrated, and it's beginning to corrupt, and this is that lie, that in order to be successful, you must possess much. Success is how much do you possess? Think about that for a second. And it's funny because that only seems to be in the West or in areas where the West has influenced. Because if you go to the rural parts of the East, 
That is not how they see success. Even the ones that don't believe in Jesus, the way they see success is, am I happy? Do I have joy, real, authentic joy? Do I have peace? And it's funny because they, they, they've caught a principle that's a godly principle without even knowing who God is. And we, the church, who know or are supposed to know who God is, have missed the very principles of what it means to have Him inside of us. Let me just nail something quickly that is often thrown at me when, when any of this is discussed or spoken about, and that's Abraham. Well, what about Abraham? Abraham was one of the most wealthy guys of that time, and uh, he possessed a lot. He was really rich. Thank you for asking that question. <laughs> God makes a promise to Abraham and he says, I'm gonna give you a son. And this son, from this son, is gonna be an inheritance where you won't even be able to count the, the numbers, the amount of your seed. And, uh, and so he, he gives he gives him a son, long story short, go read it. He gives him a son and he gets Isaac and Isaac is the promise. And right there, I guarantee you, please don't ever read the Bible like it's just some factual thing, it's real people. Can you imagine a man now has a son, he's contended for this for years and years, he's messed up, he's come back to God and said, okay, Lord, I'm gonna trust you, I'm gonna trust you. And he, he hung in there until they're old and suddenly he's got this baby boy who is the promise and in that exact moment, he became the most valuable thing to Abraham. And so he's got this boy and he, and he watches him slowly grow up. And he's just so proud of him and he loves him so much. And he's, he's watched him take his first steps and he's watched him learn to talk. And he's watched him as he's learned to work the land with his dad and with all the servants and look after the sheep. And now he's a young teenager and he's, he's just in love with this boy and he's just so grateful and God, you are so good. You are so faithful that I waited all those years and you gave me the promise that you spoke over my life. And then one night God calls him out, Abraham spending time with the Lord. And God says, I want you to take your son. I want you to walk three days to this mountain and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me. And in the Bible, it just jumps a line and goes, and Abraham took his son and went. <laughs> That's not how it happened. The Bible's telling you the story, but I guarantee you that night, Abraham wrestled. He wrestled. This was the question in Abraham's head. God, you gave him to me. I waited years and years and years and contended and believed. And even when I messed up, I returned to you and I said, God, I will trust you. And you've given him to me and I've watched him and I've taken delight in him. He's my most valuable possession. And I imagine there being silence. And Abraham has to make a decision in his heart. Am I gonna let something matter more that doesn't matter most? And so he wakes up and he gets his boy and he gets his servants and he walks the three days. And he gets to the mountain. And can you imagine as a father, you get to that mountain and you look and you know, at the top of that hill, I'm gonna kill my boy. And he tells his servants to stay and he grabs his boy. And he goes up and eventually Isaac's going, dad, we've got all the stuff to build the altar, but where's the lamb? Do you know what his response is? 
God will provide the lamb. See, something happened in Abraham's heart. I think he was going, Lord, if you're going to make me kill him, I'm trusting you to raise him from the dead because I know who you are. But he made a decision in his heart to kill him. And he takes his boy and together him and his son build an altar before the Lord. And he takes Isaac and he binds him. First of all, what wrecks me is that Isaac has such honor, not just for his dad, for God, that he's saying, Dad, if God told you to kill me, he didn't put up a fight. He let him bind him and Abraham puts him on the altar. And God still doesn't intervene. And he grabs the knife and he's made the decision. It's done. It's up here and he's coming down. Abraham made the call, I'm putting a knife in my son's chest. And he's coming down. And God says, Abraham, Abraham, twice. And before that, he said Abraham once. And the second time, he says it twice because he's, he's getting Abraham's attention. And he says, now I know your heart for me. And Abraham turns around and there's a ram in the thicket. And God provides for the sacrifice and he's able to untie his boy and he's able to make a sacrifice to the Lord. And here's the thing that I want you to know. Something happened in Abraham's life, in Abraham's heart that day when he took his most valuable possession and he made the decision in his heart, I will kill my most valuable promise, my most valuable possession. I will kill it if God, if you've told me to. Why? Because you are Lord. And so after that, God blesses Abraham like he's never had before. And I guarantee you now, Abraham never looked at that stuff as his because he knew at any moment God could tell him to get rid of it. And he had made the decision in his heart. He had positioned his life in a place where he'd say yes. Abraham's generosity was not because of his abundant wealth. Abraham's generosity was because he possessed nothing but God. That is what happened on Mount Horeb with his son Isaac. So to answer the question, if you want to throw your prosperity stuff at me and use Abraham, go and read the Bible. Why? Because God is a jealous God and he doesn't share residence. Now you can go, geez, that sounds like a pretty twisted guy. No, he's God. That, that word, God, I think we forgot what that means. He is God. Existence comes from him. God doesn't exist. Existence comes from God. Just understand who you're talking about. And so why does he ask us to forsake these things? Because there are idols that take the place of God in our life and we don't even know it. You can even make your son an idol that takes the place of your pursuit of God. And I want to, the Lord spoke this into my heart. He said, what you sing to is not what you worship. What you live your life for, that's what you worship. There are people sitting in this room today that struggled to engage with what was happening this morning. And you could see 
it's quite clear the difference because the, the ones that know God and that are living for Him, there is an easy heart engagement with the Father. The ones that don't know Him really struggle to enter in because it's a song to them. See, these lyrics are beautiful and they can make you feel nice and they can be a beautiful song and you can admire the song or you can dial out and forget. But when you know the one that they're singing about, it's no longer a song. Now it is everything inside of me is pouring out love and adoration to the one that I'm singing about. That's worship, not the song. And so what you sing to is not what you worship. What you live for, that's what you worship. What are you living for? Why do we forsake everything else? Because God makes it very clear that you cannot serve God and live for these other things. It is impossible. There is a forsaking, Paul says, I, for his sake, for my sake, for his sake, for his glory, I have lost everything. And I count it all as garbage, as absolute trash. Why? Because I know the one that I possess and I know that everything that I need is in him. Because it's not temporal, it's eternal. And so I know that he is my one in all. Every emotional need, physical need, mental need, uh, financial need, whatever it is that's in your life, he's it. And you go, how? Because when you know him and you find out who he really is and you realize that the thing that you have need of, he created. You're able to let something go when you actually make him Lord of your life. And I wanna just, um, I'll get there now. Everybody has a Lord of their life, but there's only two. And one of them is not Satan. There's only two lords. One of the two will be Lord of your life. And one of them is not Satan. He doesn't, he doesn't have that kind of power. God and mammon. There's only two masters and you'll serve and love and devote yourself to one of them. So when you look at your life and you go, gee, man, I still go to church and whatever, but hey, I just, I work hard for my money, man. I'm trying to advance my empire here. I'm trying to grow my assets and my this and my that. Now, I work hard. I don't really have time for the other stuff, but hey, I come to church. I, I do this stuff. Who's Lord of your life? I'd encourage you to read 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6 to read the whole thing because Paul's basically sharing what he's endured and, uh, and what they go through. And, and there's a line, uh, man, I, I just read it. He talks about all the hardships that he's been through and the way that he's ministered in the Holy Spirit and in the attributes of Christ. And then uh, he, he says this one line. He says, uh, 
We put no obstruction in anyone's past, so the ministry will not be discredited, but we commend ourselves in every way. Then he lists all these things. And then at the end, in verse 10, he says, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet bestowing riches on many, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. Whoa. Let me ask you this question. Adam and Eve, walking in the garden, made in the image of God, with nothing, yet having everything. No clothes, no house, no business assets. Just two people walking in fellowship with God and each other and having everything because God's given them complete rule and, and reign and domain over the, the earth. And they get to walk, and everywhere that they go, they have authority over everything that they do, but they possess nothing but God. Success, the original design. And you go, how do we do that today? Abraham did it. He had more money than you have. And he did it. It's not impossible. It's a hard thing. You sit today and you say, could I take my most valuable possession and give it back to God? All of it. Then you know where you stand. And then, so Paul's sharing all of this amazing there that he says, having nothing yet possessing all things. Then uh, he shares a couple other things. I don't have time, but you can read this. Um, then he starts to talk about, do not be unequally bound together with unbelievers. What partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? What fellowship can light have with darkness? This is from verse 14 onwards. What harmony can there be between Christ and Satan? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? You see that one there? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? He says it like absolutely nothing. Like there shouldn't, it should be, a, that question should be like, <laughs> good one. But we got to sit and ask that question. What do you do differently to unbelievers? How do you live your life? And why do you do it differently? What is it that you believe that's changed the way that you live? Who is it that you possess that's changed the decisions that you make? And then he goes on and he says, uh, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? And then he says, for we are the temple of the living God, which means the church is supposed to be this phenomenon of a, a group of godly men and women who have forsaken all else, that they may gain Christ, that the things that the world live for and strive for and work hard for are not found in the hearts of godly men and women. That even if God was to entrust us with those very things, he could take them away tomorrow and it wouldn't even, I wouldn't even flinch. That I'm living for something far greater than what's temporary and here on the earth. I know who I am. I know who I have inside of me. I know what I possess. Are you catching what I'm saying? Isn't this interesting? Then he, he reads out these promises. I will dwell among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So come out from among unbelievers and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will graciously receive and welcome you with favor. And I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And then verse one in chapter seven. Therefore, since we have 
these great and wonderful promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, completing holiness in the fear of God. Let us cleanse ourselves of everything that could contaminate body and spirit. Interesting, he doesn't say soul because your soul isn't contaminated, it's influenced. Another preach. Okay. He says, cleanse yourself of everything that could contaminate body and spirit as a response to the wonderful promises that God's spoken over your life. Because God has given you himself, we must cleanse ourselves of everything that could contaminate body and spirit so that we can live in uncorrupted, unpolluted, perfect oneness and union with God. The goal of our Christianity is to possess all of God within us and for God to possess all of us. That's the goal of Christianity. It's not to fill auditoriums. That just happens to be a byproduct of supernatural revival and the gospel. But the goal of our Christianity is that every person in this room possesses all of who God is within them, and God possesses everything that you are. It's called oneness. Okay. I'm gonna be real quick over this next part because I need to get to this end thing, but possessing God. So we've spoken a little bit about why we forsake everything else and why, I'll explain a little bit later why there's a joy in that. And the joy is when you realize who God is and what you possess. That's the joy. It's like, this is lousy. That's why Paul says, I count that as garbage compared to Jesus, compared to gaining Christ, that I may be found in him. I don't think the church understands the richness and the blessing and the uh, power that's in that. That's why we find it so difficult to forsake this stuff because we don't know the one who is inside of us and who wants to possess us. That's where the joy is found. So we've spoken, okay, we, we forsake all of this stuff, but, but what, possessing God, big deal, what is that? Oh my word, do we know who he is? We're talking about the guy who created everything. I just told you existence comes from God himself. He's the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the creator of everything. There's not a single star you could find that he didn't make. And this mighty, wild, incredible, majestic God wants you. If he wanted to, he could just, like he did for for Elijah, he was hungry and tired, and so there's a tree, and he's sleeping in the shade, and next thing, the angel comes and bakes him some bread. I'd like to have all my needs met that way. I'm just kind of doing what God's called me to do, and I'm hungry. Oh, bread, sweet. He's God. Why do we struggle to trust God? He knows what I need. We've been told so many lies, so many things, and I'll use it in the example of fasting. Everybody wants to talk about how unhealthy, hey, dude, yes, you're actually really damaging your body or whatever. I don't give a tortoise what you have to say. You don't own my body, and neither do I. 
And I'm day seven, no food, and I feel awesome. And prayer and fasting, and I'm going to get to this now, is something that we've lost in the church. But just be very careful what you believe, and that make sure you're not building your belief system around what people tell you. You get back to this book, and you study this thing. You, you get in there and you let the word uh, define you and build you up to be the person that God's called you to be. It's in there. This is where you find it. It's so important that we understand who we possess. Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and all your soul and with all your strength, your entire being. Whoa. That, that scripture comes alive, especially when you're fasting, because it's like, Jesus, I, I'm loving you with everything I have here. But we can read that and go, you know, I know that. I've had that on my fridge for six years or whatever. Or you can actually read that and go, I'm going to love the, the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul, with all my strength, with my entire being. I will love you, God. And if I die doing that, then who cares? I'm going to go back and be with you anyway in heaven. Who? See, some of you are listening to what I'm saying, and it's so foreign to you. And I'll tell you why it's so foreign. Because you are wimps. (laughs) Because you are calling yourselves these Christians, and I've, I've done that for way too long. And I'm drawing the line in the sand, and I'm saying, no, I'm a son what do sons do? Matthew 10, 8. They heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you've received, freely give. But guess what? In order to do that, you need to know the one who gives. The church needs power again. We need power. And power comes from intimacy. And where does intimacy come from? It comes from pursuing one another. And there is a lost art, and that's what I want to speak about now. I'm taking a while to get to that. I want to speak about the lost art of seeking God. What does it mean to seek God? It doesn't mean to read your verse of the day. It doesn't mean to listen to your favorite worship hits. It doesn't mean to watch your favorite televangelist on TV. It doesn't mean to watch your 14 favorite YouTube sermons. The church today thinks they can ride on the anointings of men and women and be sustained by revelation of others, and that's why we see a malnourished church. Because they don't know how to seek God for themselves. And some do, but are not prepared to pay the cost. There is a cost to seeking God. People expect God to show up on their terms, speak in their preferred manner, and do something within their time frames. To show up on their terms, God, I've given you half an hour. Where are you? I thought you said you love me. I thought you said you never leave me or forsake me. I'm here. Where are you? 
God, I don't hear you. You never speak to me. But what are you talking about? Well, I want to hear him. If he's God, he can come down and just speak. Wow, isn't it interesting? Maybe the church needs a reminder of who's creator and who's created. And I think it's time we get back on our knees and we bow in worship and reverence to our God. There's a cost to seeking the Lord. Time, patience, diligence, discipline, selfless motivation. These are all part of the cost of seeking God. You know, you read these stories and you, you, about these men and women who did incredible things. All of them fasted. All of them. And do you know that sometimes they'd fast for 40 days and get the answer on day 39? So what do you do for the first 38 days? Most of you would give up. There's an understanding we need to understand that to seek God for God and not self-gain is where we discover true worship. To understand that my pursuit of God is not even for me. That if, if he decides to come and speak to me and make himself known to me, I am blessed. But I will seek him because he's worthy. I will love him because he's worthy. I will worship him because he's worthy. And I will pay the price if I never hear a single thing, but I know that he's real. And I'm contending and I'm waiting because I will stand before him one day. And if I have only one thing to say to him, and that's, Lord, I, I sought you with everything that I am. That'll be enough. And so it requires time. And it requires patience, 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 again, and again, and again, and again, day after day after day after day. Lord, I will love you with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul, with all my strength, day after day after day. And it's in the seeking that God is so pleased. Sometimes God lets you come after him a little bit. He actually likes to enjoy the fragrance of your worship and adoration to him. And he lets you just follow him a little longer because he knows what's gonna happen. He knows what time to show up. We seek God because he's pleased by it and glorified by it. That's true worship. Oh. It's incredible when you, when you realize something, when you're seeking God, and, and there might even be things that you're seeking him for in a sense because you, you're needing things in your life. But when you make the adjustment and you seek him for him, where he becomes the great reward of your pursuit, as you begin to do that, there is a revelation that blows your mind because you go, wow, Lord, you are my reward. And when your heart is positioned in that, suddenly the Holy Spirit begins to illuminate and awaken something inside of you and he makes it known to you that you are his great reward. 
and that God's okay to let everything else fall away, crash and burn, as long as it's you and him. Because he is your reward and you are his. And nothing else matters in that space. There is a place where the song of the lamb and the song of the bride meet. That place is where heaven meets earth. And so there are disciplines that we have lost in the body of Christ. And we've lost them because of selfish ambition, because of self-interest, because of pride, because of entitlement. And we have to come back to the revelation of who is the creator and who is the created and understand that our reason for waking up every day is because mercy wakes us up to adore, to glorify, to worship, and to exalt Jesus. And when we do that, heaven comes. Hebrews 11.6, God rewards those who diligently seek him. He's a rewarder. You want to hear God? Well, how badly? Well, I don't hear God. How long did you seek him? You're still seeking? It's not something you try out. So I said earlier that power comes from intimacy and intimacy comes from pursuing one another. To seek or pursue requires focus, intention, and desire. See, I don't know about you, but here's kind of where I'm at. I want God, who I know him to be, to break into my world and make himself known. That's in the simplest understanding. Wherever I am, that's what I want. I want God to break into my world. Does that, does that make sense? And that's what we need in the church. See, the church, the church does not need better methods. It does not need better programs. It does not need better organization, better equipment, or a better building. It needs godly men and women. It, me, it needs men and women who will seek. And if God rewards those who diligently seek him, power comes on those, anointing comes on those who seek. If you look at these great men and women of God who have accessed levels of anointing that we have never seen, who are seeing signs, wonders, miracles, or seeing the power of God demonstrated in their lives, they are people who seek, and all of them fast and pray. It's not a formula, it's a discipline. So how do we get this presence and power? If you would turn to one or two more scriptures with me. Turn to Psalms 19. Is everybody okay? I'm very hungry. That might be why I have a crazy look in my eye. Psalms chapter 19, verse 1. 
the heavens declare the glory of the Lord and the expanse of heaven is declaring the work of his hands. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord and the expanse of the heavens declares the works of his hands. There's two things in the scripture that we need. We need the glory and we need the works of his hands. I don't know if you guys do. I do. I need the glory and I need the works of his hands. Without his glory and without the work of his hands, I have nothing. So the heavens, and he's talking about the natural heavens, space and the sky are declaring this at us. Why are they declaring it to us? Don't just read a scripture. Find out. Dig into that. If the heavens are declaring the glory of the Lord and the work of his hands, why? Because we need it. And it's so interesting that in Colossians chapter 3, Therefore, if you've been raised with Christ to a new life, sharing in his resurrection from the dead, keep seeking the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind and keep focused habitually on the things above, the heavenly things, not on the things that are on the earth, which have only temporal value. The heavens, the natural heavens, are declaring the glory of the Lord and the work of his hands. And they are telling us that you need to seek something that is not here, it's above. That we need to seek the things that are above habitually. Every day we wake up and we seek and we seek and we seek. Why? Because when we seek, heaven comes and the glory of the Lord is demonstrated. We create atmospheres of praise that create environments where his glory can come. And when his glory comes, that's when priests cannot stand to minister. When his glory comes, nobody else is known or remembered but the name of Jesus because that's where the power is. And so when the glory comes, the church will be birthed in fire once again. And I'm not talking about gold and feathers. I love that stuff to bits, but I'm talking about the manifest personality of God, not just in a room, in regions the Welsh revival, you couldn't even cross the border without feeling the weighty presence of God. This is what we're talking about. It's not a story, it's true. So we keep seeking the things that are above. We set our minds and keep focused habitually on the things that are above and not on the things that are on the earth. Then he goes on to say, for you died to this world and your new real life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When you have forsaken everything else, count it all as garbage, that you may gain Christ, that you may possess God and be possessed by him. When you're in that place, then Christ, who is your life, when he appears, you also appear in the glory. To many in the church, God is known as Savior, but to few is he truly known as Lord.
You can tell when he's Lord. It looks like something. The greatest joy is waiting for you when you will come back to your original design and be who God's called you to be, where you will forsake all else and possess God. Here's the thing about God. It's God and God alone. It's never God and this or that. It's God and God alone. And in Him, you have everything that you need. There is no lack in God. That is why a man like Paul could go from being this highly educated Pharisee, probably had some wealth to counting it all as lost, leaving everything behind and enduring what he endured, never questioning the nature of God, never doubting who he is, but always forsaking all else that he might gain Christ. That scripture is probably one of the most profound scriptures Paul ever wrote. Because in that one little scripture is a key to the Christian life that will unlock the realities of intimacy with God forever. If we will catch one simple thing, we'll begin to see men and women in the church that are godly, that will seek the Lord. And I, I know that this is a strong word, but it's time for this. It's time for strong words. It's time that we preach the word. It's time that we bring people back to the truth. Not part of the truth, not a glimpse of the truth, not a little taste of the truth, the whole truth. This is it. This is what the book says. Come back to this and you'll find out who you really are. You're looking for the meaning of life? Seek. And some of you are here today and you're going to listen to what I'm going to say and you're going to go home and carry on with what you're doing. Some of you are, have heard what I've said. I think you need to prepare your hearts and make sure that there's good soil to receive what's going to be shared in these last days from preachers and ministers that are of God and not of themselves. I stand here before you today because of the mercy of heaven not because I have anything to offer you. Every, in fact, almost everybody in this room knows what I've been through, what I've journeyed, and who I could have been, and where I was going. But the mercy of God. We need the mercy of God. And I want you to understand this. The love of God and the mercy of God is so beautiful, but the love of God is not separate to his glory and the mercy of God flows from his mighty splendor. There is a reverence even in the midst of love and mercy. I stand here today, honestly, because of the grace and mercy and love of God. And it's because of that that I know I want to give him everything that I am, and I don't claim to have it figured out. What I preach to you today is what God is working in my heart, and He is shaping me and forming me and correcting me and adjusting me and teaching me. Everything that I share to you is never, you need to get your act together. It's always God is speaking to us. He is speaking to us. Are we going to respond? Are you going to be like the cities that are worse off than Sodom and Gomorrah? 
Or are you going to yield to Jesus, forsake all else? It's amazing that Abraham was able to forsake it all, yet still have it. Some of you here are going, I'm too scared to lose all the stuff. Well, you need to deal with that first in your heart. God's not asking you to have nothing. He looks after you. And each of you have different divine calls, and God knows exactly what you need to do those specific things. If one of the gifts in this book in the church is generosity, then someone's got to have something to give. So I'm not nailing wealth. I'm nailing mammon as Lord. Are you hearing what I'm saying today? So there are really what I want to communicate. Right from the word go this morning, the Lord's been speaking to us about His glory. In the worship, everything that was coming there was about His glory. If you want the glory of God, we need to seek Him. It's not works. It's not law. It's what sons do. It's spiritual disciplines. Prayer and fasting is a spiritual discipline. I'd encourage you to make it a lifestyle to decide a couple days in the week or one day here or two days, just fast. But remember that you can't just fast. You've got to fast and seek. And I believe that there's going to be some of you that the Lord is going to call to extended fasts once again. Long periods of time where you get to a point where you think you're going to die and you keep going and God sustains you. And you begin to see things happen like they did in this book that will blow your mind. Please do not tell me that Jesus fasted 40 days so that you don't have to. Jesus fasted 40 days to show you how to do it. So my encouragement, I have no idea how to communicate this, but he wants you to seek him. He wants you to come after him. He wants your attention. He wants your time. He wants the generation that will seek his face and require, them, require him as their greatest need. Psalms 24, 6. That's what he wants. And that's what we were born for. That's what 24, 7 church exists for. So when I was praying this morning, I asked the Lord what he wants to do after I share something like this. Because I, I, I feel like to leave it like this for you to just go, a lot of you are going to feel challenged but, but not feel invited to more. And I want to invite you to seek him. And I believe that there's two things that are happening today. There's revelation and there's healing. Some of you need to know that healing comes when you forsake what hurts you. This morning, God woke me up. I was just lying there, and I went, it was early, and then I went back to bed. But when I, when I woke up, uh, I don't even know what time it was. It was still dark. And I just, I just rolled over. Jess was still sleeping. and I just heard the Lord say, it's going to be two angels with you today. And I said, okay, that's cool. What are, they, what are they there to do? In fact, no, I first asked for their names. I like to ask for their names. I didn't get their names. But he said, healing and revelation. They're coming to impart healing and revelation. And I believe that they've been here while I've been sharing to bring revelation to some of you, to bring healing to others. 
This really is not about you having it figured out or how good or bad you've been. Man, scrap all of that stuff and seek God. Ah, thank you, Lord. I want to give you a principle, or not a principle, a, a discipline in your life. When you're seeking God, three things happen, and then a fourth thing happens after those three. These three things happen. You start off with worship. You worship Him because He's worthy. No other agenda. You come before Him and you exalt Him and you worship Him and you enjoy Him and you seek Him. Sorry, that's my second point. Second point, you seek Him. You worship Him and then you seek Him. And when you seek Him, you use the name that's in the power of Jesus to bring your mind and every thought that exalts itself above Christ. You bring it captive by the name of Jesus and you seek Him. And you say, Lord, I give you my attention. I give you my focus. I love you. What are you wanting to do in me? What are you saying? Show me who you are. I want to know your character, your nature, your personality. You begin to focus and you go after it. And then you seek and you seek and you seek and you're diligent and you're patient. And when God's ready, you receive. And he imparts and he releases something. And it's only in that process when you receive, now you have something to give. Freely you have received, now freely give. You can only release something if you've received it. You want to go heal the sick and pray for people on the streets? Have you sought out Jesus? Have you been with him? You can't release what you haven't received from him. And people go, hey, listen, brother, you're now starting to come against the finished work of Jesus. It's all been given to you. Yes, it has. If I give you a Ferrari but don't give you the keys, what are you going to do? He's given it to you. It's yours. But there are keys that start the engine. There are keys that are an ignition for what he's given you. Seeking the Lord is that key. So I believe that he wants to demonstrate power and his presence here today. Will you get ready with those? So uh, what I'm going to do is I want to create a, an environment. If you have to go, you have to go. I understand. If you're hungry, you'll stay. Cancel whatever you need to cancel. <clears throat> I'm done playing games. Um, I got some songs. We're going to play some of these songs. I want you to seek the Lord, to practice, to seek him. If you are here and you have any form of sickness or pain or disease or infirmity or whatever it is, I want you to come. And we've got guys that are going to pray for you as well. Um, obviously, if you come forward, just tell somebody <laughs> that you have that. Otherwise, I'm going to assume that you're seeking the Lord. Um, so um, we want to go after that. And, and if, whatever it is, if there's specific things that God's highlighting on your heart that you want to pray for, it doesn't have to be me or my dad. Or, it can be a believer with you, but, but pray together. But more than anything else, I, I want us to really seek God, even just for a few minutes. And I just want you to, to let the Holy Spirit seal what I've shared now. Let, it, let Him really just seal this on your heart so that from here on out, it's not a great sermon that you've heard. I hate great sermons. I'm done with great sermons. I want the gospel in our lives. I want heaven in me, changing me, shaping me. So we're going to do that. Will you stand with me? Oh, yeah. So let's just spend some time seeking. Father, I thank you that every word that I've shared, Lord, let it only be of you. Anything that's not of you, let it fall away. But we love you, we worship you, and we honor you. Let's seek Jesus for a few minutes.